You know, I'm a firm believer that nothing speaks louder than a personal testimony of what God has done in someone's life. A few months ago, Carol Spears was here speaking to our staff in our chapel time. There wasn't a dry eye in the place when she finished. And afterwards, I said, Carol, could you come down to the studio and share with our membership what you've shared with our staff? I want you to listen carefully to this. I think God will move you like he moved me. Carol, I am excited about what God's doing in your life, and I wanted to get you in front of the microphone uh, to kind of tell your story. I mean, heading off to the mission field. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell what God started doing in your life. Actually, all the way back to the beginning, I grew up in a Christian home and came to know the Lord at an early age and then lived for many years for Him. But then in my 20s, began working in the corporate world and really became quite involved in becoming successful and wanting to make a lot of money and achieve a lot of worldly success. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But as I did that, I became farther and farther away from the Lord. And looking back on that time, I think that uh, I had a sense of restlessness and an emptiness that I was seeking to fill in some way. And it took a letter from my best friend, who at that time was a missionary in Nigeria. And she basically said, who have you become? Hmm. You know, you're no longer someone that can be my best friend. And that letter God really used to bring me back to him. So you got an MBA. You were in the business world, climbing the ladder. and I did. And after that MBA, I had finally gotten that letter. I'd restored my relationship with the Lord. And and with this friend, and so I went on a vacation to celebrate the fact that I was never going to go to school again, (laughs) and I went to see her, and she was a missionary nurse working with surgeons a couple mornings a week. She was married to, her husband's a seminary professor, and they were raising their family there in Nigeria, and as I just went about her life with her, I saw the difference they were making in the lives of those patients and people in Nigeria, and and felt God calling me to medical school. Wow. How old were you then? I was 31, and <laughs> I, I had n- no idea if you could actually go back and start back over and, and do medicine. And and I found out you can. I'm very glad that the Lord didn't tell me that it was going to be a 14-year <laughs> journey. And at the end of it all, I would go to Africa single. But uh, it's it's been quite an amazing journey. So you went back to first undergraduate? Have you had to get mm-hmm. some pre-med I to, courses? I and... did. I had to get some prerequisites. And then I went to the University of Alabama Medical School. Uh-huh. And in third year, I told God I'd be willing to do just about anything but surgery. Huh. And sure enough, as I rotated through my surgery rotation, just found it choosing me. I yeah. loved it. And uh, despite all of the concerns about the fact that I was an older female and could I do this or not, I ended up feeling like surgery was the right thing and got open the doors. And I went to University of Kentucky for my general surgery residency training. Surgery residency, that's tough. Yeah. It uh, How'd it go? It is tough, and um, I think all residencies are tough. We like to think ours is the <laughs> toughest, but it was wonderful. I, I have uh, great respect for the surgeons who were my mentors and the faculty there at UK. Early in my third year of training, they started talking to us that two of us needed to go into the lab or take a year out in some way because two people were coming out of the lab into our class, and mm-hmm. they needed to keep a 
constant number of surgeons graduating. And um, I went over to the Louisville Medical Missions Conference and told God I'd be open to the idea of spending a year in Africa during my training. And as he would have it, everyone I talked to that entire weekend was so encouraging me to consider that and supportive of the idea of taking some time out and and rotating kind of over to a developing country situation for some surgery training. Did you have Christian faculty at UK people that mentored you and had an impact on your life? Yes, we were really blessed there to have Christian surgeons on faculty and they were very committed to the Lord and then to to making it so that as residents we had opportunities and they didn't want to force anyone into the lab and they worked with me to make it possible for me to go uh, ultimately to Tenwick Hospital for a year in Kenya. (laughs) Yes, I know it's dear to your heart and very dear to mine. And so I spent what was actually my fourth year of residency over there at Tenwick, but that doesn't count toward completion of your residency. So when I came back, I had two more years of training to complete. Tell me about that year. How did that year impact you medically? Let's start there. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, General surgery in Africa is a little different than general surgery in the United States. Uh, the accent is on general. <laughs> very general, very much beyond all of uh, the training that I had had at that point, even though it was great it, and, and very broad. Certainly, I had not been trained to do neurosurgery and evacuate hematomas or depressed skull fractures or those kinds of things <laughs> that I saw on call or to help little babies with hydrocephalus and put in VP shunts and that kind of thing. But I worked under the guidance of the missionary surgeons and Kenyan surgeons there and uh, visiting American surgeons mm-hmm. who would come over and also had a lot of autonomy. So I think I think medically it was a very good year. You don't have all of the tests and studies that you're used to having in America, and you really become more of a clinician and able yeah. to assess the patient and to really make a decision based on you know clinical findings and uh, I think that was good for me at that point in my training. I found missionary medicine to be so stimulating because you never ran out of something new. I mean, there was just something every day almost, if yes. not every week, came in that just, you know. You've never put seen you on, before. Put you on your knees. <laughs> Absolutely. And I would often go to our resource library and try to get a book to see, you know, what is it that I'm supposed to do for this or whatever. But that keeps you stimulated it keeps you growing and keeps you challenged it can be frustrating yeah but um, there's a a tremendous sense of satisfaction too and so i i thoroughly enjoyed it what else did god do that year in your life as far as your spiritual and emotional development well it was a a wonderful year and i think overall spiritually i was able to grow closer to him and to realize i had to trust him through everything for my career for my provision um, Mm -hmm. and all of those things and I enjoyed getting to know the Kenyans and the other missionaries and that sense of family and camaraderie that's there toward the end of my time there I experienced a personal tragedy that really became very significant in my life Joy Phillips who was the head of community health and development there at Tenwick and I had gone away for a weekend up to Lake Naivasha and stayed at a beautiful resort and had just a relaxing weekend. And on Monday afternoon, about 1 o'clock in broad daylight, we left to go back to Tenwick. And when we had driven only a short distance, um, four men came out from the side of the road and 
Two of them had AK-47 machine guns and stopped at our car and demanded our money. We gave them our money and even gave our bags, you know, out the window, but that wasn't enough, and they forced their way into our car. They uh, took over, and they, they drove us off, and instead of joining the main road, they went on a little dirt path and ultimately drove the car off in a field and into some underbush like they were trying to hide the vehicle. And they took us out and made us kneel down to the ground, put our faces to the ground. The leader came over to us, and the other men started going through everything in our car, and the leader wanted more money. And we said, we don't have anything else to give you. You have everything that, that we have at this point. He uh, he grabbed me and drug me a, a short distance away to another group of trees, and as I wrestled against him, uh, I was no match for his strength. And he raped me, and he brought me back over to Joy. And I knelt back down on the ground with her, and, and we continued praying aloud. We had been praying aloud the whole time they had been in our vehicle, and we didn't really know what to pray. So we just were saying, Jesus, Jesus, please protect us. And mm. Jesus, please be with us. And Joy says that she has a, had a real sense of God's overwhelming presence throughout that whole day. I can't say that I had that, but I had a, a calmness that I think could have only been from him. The leader at that point kind of went back and joined the other men, and they became very agitated. They, they've never raised their voices. They spoke in whispered Swahili the whole time. Neither of us spoke Swahili, so we didn't really know what they were saying. But they seemed to be arguing and as if they were trying to decide whether or not they would kill us. And about that time, we heard the droning of an airplane engine, a single-engine airplane. And we thought, could it be? Because it's just so rare to see a plane in that rural part of Africa and looked up and saw the plane. The men saw it, too, and they were looking at it with the binoculars. They had just stolen from us, and it scared them. And they began walking away, carrying hmm. as much of our stuff as they could through the brush. And we waited just a few seconds and tried to flag the plane and could not get its attention. And we looked around quickly for the car keys that they had taken with them and assessed what, what all they had stolen and sort of began walking back on the road the way we had come. And... I believe we must have walked for 45 minutes before a British lady hmm. stopped to pick us up. And she said it's certainly not her habit to pick up hitchhikers in Kenya, but she could tell we were distressed. And she became our angel of rescue. And she took us back to her home, and her husband went to get the police. You have to go and pick them up and buy their gas and you know help them help you there in Kenya. And we called our friends and the head of the mission, and they came immediately, and mm. Dr. Russ White, Dr. Eric Miller, and his wife Jody really took care of my medical needs and then just began to surround Joy and I with love and prayers. And Terry Duncan and Michael Johnson came from Nairobi, head of the mission there. And just really that night, they had a guest house, and we were all down at the guest house. And I remember so clearly thinking, Lord, are you in charge of the universe? And if you are, aren't you in control of all things? And if so, why did you let this bad thing happen? And 
I had a clear sense that, you know, I just needed to trust him through this. And so I did. And I, I remember having a very vivid image of Jesus just holding me tight with tears running down his face. Because, you know, Dave, when, when we hurt and when we grieve, he grieves. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt his presence through that. We went back to Tenwick the next day. And it took me a few days, but I decided ultimately that I wanted to share this story started sending it out over email and allowed my missionary colleagues to all send it out over email. And as people around the world began praying, it was unbelievable. We could just feel it. And I was doing very well. I was shocked at the Kenyans' reactions. They were just so devastated that this had happened in their country. And Hmm. I tried to reassure you, this can happen anywhere. This is not an Africa thing. This can happen anywhere. And I was really doing well until about two weeks later, I decided I wanted to check an early HIV test. I was worried about HIV. It's very prevalent there in that part of Africa. I was worried about pregnancy. And I sent in some blood work to Nairobi to a lab that could do some advanced testing. And the next day I called to get the result. And they told me a positive test result. And, you know, I was in shock and angry. I found myself really for the first time in my life just angry at God and devastated because now all of a sudden my whole future and all of my dreams were crumbling. Mm -hmm. I could no longer plan to be a surgeon. I could no longer plan to be a missionary doctor. I might never get married. You know, all of these things that were coming to my mind. And I just cried out to him, Lord, what are you thinking and what are you doing? All I could hear him saying back to me was, trust me, those two words, trust me. And I just, in my defiance, I'm ashamed to say, just said, I don't want to trust you, Lord. I, I want you to fix this. And he didn't. And and this went on for days. Mm-hmm. I just wrestled with him. You know, I'd go to the scripture and, and read about his unfailing love and think it didn't feel that way. And I'd read about his plans for good and not for evil, and it sort of didn't feel like a good plan to me at that point. And ultimately, though, I came to a point where I had to be willing to relinquish my whole hopes and my dreams and my plans and say, okay, Lord, I trust you as an act of my will. Certainly not with my emotions and not with my feelings at that point. But as an act of my will and as an act of obedience, I trust you. And instantly, he gave me peace. Mm. It it was just so vivid that that's what he wanted, my total surrender to his plan, whatever it might be. And at that point, I still didn't know. I thought I was potentially facing having a child from this rape and potentially HIV positive. and, And both of those things were devastating. So in the coming days, I praise him that um, I was not pregnant and and I was not HIV positive, or maybe he healed me. I don't know the answer to that, but I know that all further testing, including a DNA PCR test, which is the most accurate, all subsequent testing has been negative. Hmm. And so I'm I'm very wow. grateful, yeah. very grateful. But you know, the aspect of his character that I experienced through that, I don't think I could have experienced any other way. And that that's really what I'm most thankful for. Yeah. 
He teaches us the biggest lessons in the deepest pits. Oh, goodness. It's it's just so, so true. And I'm very fortunate. You know, a lot of women have to see their attackers or they know them and, mm-hmm. and still interact with them. And mine is a half a world away, and I'm, I'm quite grateful for that. Um, and I don't want to minimize the anguish that goes through this type of trial and this type of tragedy. But for me, God was working on my my spiritual side and my heart, and he's, I think, healed me from so many of the leftover residual. And actually now I think he's calling me back to Africa. I was going to say, most people would say that's the last place in the world I'll ever go back to is Kenya because of what happened there. Yeah. And now you're getting on a plane and heading back. I am. I hope to very soon. And I think it, he's made it very clear that he's calling me to be a career missionary surgeon. I want very much to be involved with teaching and training young African doctors and hopefully African surgeons mm-hmm. and and be able to give them the ability to have an excellent standard of training and then be able to go out and to take not only their medical knowledge but their Christian witness with them all over Africa. And at Tenwick Hospital there in Kenya, I believe we do that and I believe that's where he's calling me. And I try to reassure people, I'm okay. It's okay for me to go back. I think it'll be, it's God's plan, and I'll I'll be fine. When it comes down to it, it's a walk of faith, though, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it is. I mean, all the exposure, but you finally have to come to that point to make a decision and say, I'm going to be obedient, I'm going to surrender, mm-hmm. I'm going to be willing to put everything on the altar, because that's the... That's the thing we all struggle with, no matter what we're doing in our life, is there's something we want to hold back. Our oh, kids, our, our, uh, our career, our spouse, our, that's you so know, true. whatever. There's Just something. the control of our own life. And that's and he does it better than we do it. And it, it's hard to admit, but yeah. he does. And it's just something that if we trust him, he will, he will guide us on the, the right path. Carol, you've inspired me, and I'm ready to you know pack up and go with you. <laughs> oh, come back. Come back. That would be wonderful. Uh, But I want to thank you for just sharing your testimony and for letting us see what God's done in your life. It's uh, there's nothing more powerful than seeing someone completely surrender to Christ and see what God does with them. And I'm excited about what's ahead. This is just the beginning. It is. Thank you, Dave, and thank you for all you do at CMDA and the wonderful ministry that you have here. Appreciate it a lot. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. If you'd like to hear Carol Spears in person and you're a woman, you have a treat in store. She's going to be speaking at the Women in Medicine and Dentistry Conference held in San Diego, California, September 25th through the 28th, just next month. It's not too late to go online at cmda.org slash go slash WIMD for more information. And you can register right there online and uh, find out about the other speakers. Naheed Hotchkiss will be speaking, Dr. Gene Rudd, and others. Uh, This conference is always a wonderful time of fellowship, focusing on the specific needs that women in medicine face. It's, It's a wonderful time together, and I encourage you to make time to go.